seja. Scripture reading this morning will come from 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. That's 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. If you're using the Pew Bible, Red Pew Bibles, that's on page 992. That's 992 in the Red Pew Bibles. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop must, then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside lest he fall into the reproach of the snare of the devil. One of the distinctive features of New Testament Christianity is the way that Jesus has chosen to organize his church. The Bible speaks of men who oversee every congregation. The Bible speaks of every congregation being autonomous, submissive to Jesus Christ himself, but that men known as elders or deacon, uh, elders or bishops or, or uh, pastors, if you will, those kind of men overseeing the body. And what our elders here at Katy, there are eight of them, have chosen to do is to begin a search process that starts today and we'll conclude, I think sometime the plan is in November after they've had time to talk to everyone that, whose name is submitted. But in November, the idea is to be able to install some additional men to serve as elders. As Tom pointed out a few moments ago, none of the current elders plans on resigning. But you think of stepping aside or anything like that. But you think about the idea that this is proactive, that we look forward to the work of God that takes place here in Katy, and that we are emphasizing things that would please God. I don't know about you, but if you just watch the elders, if you just watch the eight men that currently serve, they are very talented, very godly men, and they are involved in many, many people's lives. Because the Bible describes them as shepherds, and you, you can see on an individual basis, if you just watch one or two of them, just, just pick them out and, and see where they're going, who they're talking to, and they're very, very active. And even though there are eight of them, in a congregation the size of Katy, they still admit they're in over their heads, which is a good thing, by the way, and they need help. And they believe there may be some others that are qualified, and it would be a good idea to do the search at this time for that reason. 
You know, what we think about the leadership of the church makes a huge difference in the future of any congregation. As a matter of fact, the church will never rise above its leadership. Whatever the leaders are, that's what the church's destiny is ultimately in a local congregation. And so we need to give a lot of time and attention to the idea of what kind of men would we select to serve in this important role. If you haven't already opened your Bible to 1 Timothy 3 verses 1 through 7, go ahead and do so. And we'll be looking at this passage in a few moments in more detail. But what I've been asked to do today is in the morning service now, talk about the qualifications. What kind of man is God looking for? It's not a popularity contest. It's not what do you think would be a good elder, but what does God say? What does he and his word teach that he's looking for in an elder? And then tonight we're going to talk, Lord willing, about the work that elders do. What responsibilities has God assigned to these men And with all that in mind, let me just introduce the idea of elders this way. There are three words, there are three terms that refer to the same office in the New Testament. The first word is the word presbyteros. It just means an older man. He's a man of maturity. I recently have had to start using reading glasses and I went to the optometrist and he told me I have what is it, presbyopia, something like that? The idea is my eyes are getting old and so I need reading glasses sometimes. And he made me a prescription for that. It just means older. That's the idea of an elder. He's an older man. He's a man of maturity. But then secondly, episkopos. That is a Greek word that means overseer or as we just read in the King James translation in 1 Timothy 3, bishop. So he's a man of management. He's one who oversees And then when you think about the terms that the Bible uses to describe an elder, poimain is the third term, a shepherd or a pastor. Our religious friends and the communities around us, they use the term pastor in a very different way than the Bible uses it. But the Bible speaks of an elder as being a pastor. I myself, personally, I am not an elder in the church here at Katy. I am a gospel preacher. I am a minister of Jesus Christ, just like everyone who's a Christian ought to be a minister of Jesus Christ, a servant, but I am not an elder. I am not a pastor. The pastor, that idea is reserved for a group of men who meet the qualifications that you read about in 1 Timothy 3 and also in Titus chapter 1. So those three terms describe the same office. And this is borne out even in various passages in the New Testament. For example, in Acts 20, verse 17, the Apostle Paul calls for the presbyteros, the elders of the church. But later in that same passage, he says, take heed to yourselves, talking to the elders, among, uh, take heed to yourselves and all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episkopos, to shepherd, poimain, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So there you have those three terms in one New Testament passage, all referring to the same group of men. A similar thing happens in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. These three terms, man of devotion, a man of maturity, a man of management, these three terms refer to the same office in the New Testament. I'm going to give you a list of passages Because one of the things our elders here are asking you as a congregation to do is this. They're asking you to look among ourselves and ask yourself, are there men that I know that meet the qualifications we're talking about this morning? 
And what, what the elders would like for you to do is to go and talk to those men and ask them, would you be willing, would you be interested in serving as a shepherd over the church at Katy? And what I want you to do before you go and talk to them and have this conversation is to just spend some time thinking about and praying about the passages that deal with the work of elders. Now, we're just talking this morning basically about 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, but there are many other passages that also refer to the work of shepherds. So some important passages just to keep in mind. Of course, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, both of those passages deal with the qualifications of a man who would serve as an elder. But you also read about the work of elders in passages like 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 4. Peter, who himself was an elder later in his life, wrote to other elders and told them that they are to shepherd the flock that is among them. And there's some things about being a shepherd in that passage that are worthy of thought and prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 and 13, another passage that talks about how the church and the elders relate to one another. Hebrews 13, verse 17, similar how we are to obey those who have the rule over us and we are to not give them grief and rather let them be joyful in their work because they watch out for souls. So those are some important passages to keep in mind. Read those, talk about those, ask questions about those. And if you're confused about something or you need some clarification, talk to somebody. What does this mean? And why is the Bible saying that shepherds ought to do this? And If I'm looking for someone who might be willing to serve as a shepherd, does he meet the the qualifications and the standards that God has set forth in his word? Those are some important passages worth pondering. With all that said, again, looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3, what I'd like for us to do is this. I'm just going to ask six questions this morning. And I'm taking the qualifications because some of them overlap in 1 Timothy and Titus. And I'm grouping them into kind of like groups, putting them in buckets that that go together. And as we look for and ask questions about what kind of man does God desire, what kind of man is God looking for, use these questions to kind of evaluate the answer to that question. In the first place, let's ask this question. Does he desire the work? Does he desire the work? If you're looking at 1 Timothy 3, look again at verse 1. This is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of an episkopos, a bishop, an overseer, he desires a good work. And there's something that is really important about a man having a desire to do this. Notice, if you will, just thinking about the verse itself, 1 Timothy 3 verse 1, the Bible indicates that this is an important work, brothers and sisters and friends. Someone is going to lead in the church. History has shown that when there's a vacuum in leadership, whether it's nations, whether it's churches, whether it's families, when there's a vacuum, somebody always rises to fill that vacuum. And we may not always be very pleased with who it is. And so it's an important work. Jesus has set in order the way his church is to function. And he says, this is a faithful saying as he begins this section dealing with the qualifications of elders, this work is important. I'll tell you this, from a doctrinal perspective, no congregation will ever go in a different direction doctrinally than its leadership. In the long term, over many years, wherever the leadership is, wherever their hearts are, that's where the church is headed doctrinally. 
And so it's very important as we think about what kind of men are going to be responsible for feeding the flock and for making sure that God's word is being upheld and the gospel is being proclaimed in all of its fullness, Acts 20, verse 27, this work is important. It's important for us to appreciate that. Looking over God's people. Secondly, as you look at 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, the work is compelling. I want to say something to those of you who are younger men who are not yet quite qualified. We have an abundance of young families. But one, I want you to think about something. If you're a younger man and you're thinking about, you know, I don't know if I would want to be an elder or not one day. Think about this. We are talking about a role that is exceedingly important and you can help and bless and oversee the people of God. That's the role that elders have. This is something to which you are accountable. It's something to which you, you give an answer to God. You must give an answer for the souls that are in your charge. But it is a wonderful work, a compelling work, to be responsible for overseeing the people of God. It's compelling, and it ought to be. If our minds are in the right place, if our hearts are in the right place, if our devotion to the Lord is in the right place, this ought to be something that every younger person looks at and says, wow, that's a compelling work. I'd be interested in maybe doing that one day when I get some maturity and some experience and some wisdom and pray about those things. Third, this is a work. The office of a bishop, the office of an overseer, it's work. Just ask the current eight shepherds here at Katy about the time that they invest in doing the work of shepherds here. It's work. But it is work for the Lord, and it is work that blesses the people and the church of God in this community. It's an important work. And notice again, it's noble. It's a good work. That's what the Bible says. Let me say it this way, the reverse of what I just mentioned. If a congregation gets to a point where everybody in the congregation says, I have no interest, every qualified man says, I have no interest in doing this, something is wrong in the teaching and the attitude of that congregation. Something's wrong. Because when we talk about being Christians, being Christians mean that we're zealous for good works. We were created for good works. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 14. We are people who are about good works. And God is looking at you and he's saying, this, being an elder, is a good work. It's a work that needs to be done. It's a work that's necessary. It's a work that's compelling. Think about it. Pray about it. Does he desire the work? Secondly then, this morning... As you think about the qualifications, one of the questions that needs to be asked is, is he mature as a Christian? Not everybody who's been a Christian for a while has grown as much as they should have. Not everybody who has been a Christian for decades has matured in the ways that they could have. There's something about growing in maturity and wisdom that is essential, and the Bible spells this out plainly, to being an elder. He must be a mature man. Look at 1 Timothy 3, verse 6. The scripture says he is not to be a novice. The word there in Greek means a newly planted one. Even though he's an older man, even though he may have been a Christian for a while, if he hasn't shown any signs of growth, if he hasn't developed and matured in his faith, he is a novice biblically. And the scripture goes on to say, and watch this, a lot of congregations have ignored this at their peril, and they found out later on that they made mistakes. 
Look at verse 6. If he's a novice, the danger and the temptation is that he will be puffed up with pride and he will fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Pride is a real problem for those who serve as elders. And a newly planted, immature Christian is not right for that role. 1 Timothy 3 verse 7. He must have a good reputation a good testimony specifically among those who are outside. He's a man who's lived his life in a way that not only in the church, but outside the church, nobody can gainsay. Nobody can look at this man and, and, and provide an accusation and say, I can't believe that the church of Christ over there at Katy put that man in position of being a shepherd. Let me tell you how he does business. Let me tell you how he treats his neighbors. Let me tell you some things about that man. Nope. He's a man who has a reputation that is good. He's mature. Titus chapter 1 verses 7 through 9 also indicates that he must be skilled in the word. Turn over there if you would for just a moment. Keep your finger there in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But look at Titus chapter 1 and look at verses 7 through 9. Because Titus says, or Paul says to Titus, in Titus chapter 1 verse 7, a bishop must be blameless, gives a number of qualifications, and then notice in verse 9, he is to hold fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able, Titus chapter 1 verse 9, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So we're looking for a man, we're looking for men who know the Bible, they know the gospel, they know what's right and what's wrong, what's true and what's false, and they're able by their use of God's word to counter and to talk to people that contradict that which is healthy, that which is sound. He's mature in his faith. He's skilled in the word of God. Is he mature as a Christian? Another question to ask, number three, is he a family man? A man who serves as an elder. By the way, I didn't mention this. I guess it must kind of go without saying. God's word, brothers and sisters and friends, exclusively reserves the office of being an elder for men exclusively it's always a man and many of the reasons why it's always it always must be a man is because of these qualifications that we're about to look at he is according to first timothy chapter 3 verse 2 to be the husband of one wife again go back in your bibles there first timothy 3 verse 2 again the bible says a bishop must then be blameless the husband of one wife in the greek language it literally says he is a one-woman man. His marriage is in accordance with the word of God and the will of God. That's the idea. And even more than that, listen to what I'm about to say. He loves his wife. They're not just two strangers living in separate parts of the house with no real relationship. He is the husband of one wife. He cares about her. He loves her. He cares for her as Christ loves the church, Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. He's committed to that kind of marriage. Not a perfect man, but a man who loves his wife. Something about the way we treat our families at home correlates to the way that we're going to shepherd the church of God. That's what the Bible implies here. He's the husband of one wife. Look at 1 Timothy 3, verses 4 and 5. The scripture also indicates that he rules his own house well. He's got children, it says in verse 4, and they are in submission with all reverence. And then there's this question in verse 5. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? 
those of you who are younger and you have children at home right now, I'd like for you to think about this over the next few weeks, months, years. There is a correlation between the way you parent and the way that you're going to shepherd the church if you're an elder one day. There's a one-to-one correlation. The way you parent your children is going to translate almost perfectly into the way that you shepherd the church of God. If a man is passive and uncommitted and out of, the, out of touch, you know, Homer Simpson kind of guy in his, in his home life, he's not going to be qualified to serve as an elder. On the other hand, if a man is domineering and authoritarian in a sinful way, he's also not going to be qualified to serve as an elder. He rules his own house well. He has his children in submission. The idea is that the kids love and respect their father because of the fact that their father is trying to serve the Lord and because he cares for them. And they can tell he rules his own house well, has his children in subjection. Notice in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, the word children is plural. Children in subjection. And this, this leads to a question. I know it naturally happens every time we do an elder search. How many children must a man have? Must there be more than one? Because the word here is plural. Follow my logic for just a moment. Take your Bible. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 4. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 4. Same book, just a few words down from what Paul writes in 1 Timothy 3, verse 4. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 4, Paul's contemplating widows and the church needing to care for widows. And watch what he says. 1 Timothy 5, 4. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, notice that those are both plural. If she has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. Okay? question. What if a widow only has one child? Is that one child exempt from this commandment? Well, you see, it says plural, it's children. And my mother doesn't have plural children. She's just got me, just one child. And therefore I don't have to do for her because it was plural in first Timothy five, verse four. I don't have to do what the Bible requires me to do. The word children is an encompassing word But if a man is otherwise eminently qualified to serve as a shepherd, I believe using the logic that comes from the way Paul uses the word children in this book implies that if a man only has one child, but he's otherwise qualified, that there's no objection seriously to installing him as an elder in that case. He has his children in subjection, though. They listen to him. They respect him. And by the way, they are to be faithful believing children. Titus chapter 1 verse 6. The requirement is stringent because the office is stringent. The office is demanding. Here is a man who has brought up his children. He's had them in subjection to him. He knows how to parent. He knows how to love them. He knows how to care for them. And they have taken the faith that their father believes, and they have adopted that into their own lives. They are believers themselves. That is a qualification, and there's no way to get around that biblically. They are to be faithful, believing children. Is he a family man? It's a question worth pondering. What kind of family does he have? What kind of investments does he make in his family? What kinds of attitudes do we see in his home life? Because, mark it, the way he treats his family is the way he's going to treat the church. The way he deals with his kids is the way he's going to deal with the people of God. 
That's important. Next question, what about his character? What about the kind of person he is on the inside, the kind of person he tries to be when nobody's watching? Going back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, the Bible uses the word blameless to describe him. You know, people have taken that word over the years, and I've heard some really interesting arguments about, well, so-and-so is not blameless because I saw him do such and such in 1973. Let me just say this. Peter turned out to be an elder. Peter, Simon Peter, 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 4. Peter, the apostle, later served as an elder in a local congregation. Now, let's just go back and review the history of what we know of Peter. Peter's the one that tried to tell Jesus not to go to the cross, and Jesus called him Satan, remember? Matthew chapter 16. Not only that, but Peter is the one who denied Jesus when Jesus was on trial. Three times used curse words and swear words, Peter did. Then Peter dissembled from the Gentiles in Galatians chapter 2. When everybody came to, to, to talk about Judaism and Judaizing teachers, Peter decided that he needed to stay away from his Gentile brethren. Peter made some really bad errors in judgment, sins. And yet Peter was qualified. So what does blameless mean? Blameless means this. No, he's not a perfect man. But the question you need to ask is this. Can you see in his life? Can you see in his attitude? He's committed to the gospel. He is faithful to Jesus Christ. And more than anything else in his life, he wants to seek God's kingdom and righteousness first. Can you see that in his life? Matthew 6, If you can, that's the Bible description of blameless. You could see that in Peter, despite all that you knew about what happened in Peter's background. 1 Timothy 3, verse 2 also uses the word vigilant or temperate. He is someone who is not given to excessive passions and desires. He's not ruled by his passions. Titus chapter 1, verse 8 says he's a man who loves what is good. He cares about things that are good. He doesn't delve into and dwell upon things that are evil and wicked. His hobbies, his passions, his desires, his interests, they all center on things that are good and right and noble and just. That's the kind of man he is. He is also sober-minded. Sober-minded means that he is a man who does not lose his mind just because there is conflict and just because there is chaos. If there's anything that we know a lot about over the last year and a half, it is conflict and chaos. True? As a society, as a congregation, we know about conflict and chaos. An elder is a man who is sober-minded in the midst of all that. That is to say, he keeps an even keel. He doesn't fly off the handle. He treats things that are serious with gravity in an appropriate way. He's sober-minded. He's somebody that you look to for stability in times like that. 1 Timothy 3 verse 2 calls him respectable and orderly. Again, same idea. He's a man who lives in a way that people look at him and say, you know, if every Christian in the church could be like that person, I believe the church would be a lot better off. I believe the people of God would be in a much better place. It's his character. Next, does he have bad habits? Again, just taking these qualifications and grouping them together. And it's interesting to me, my observation over doing this for many years, most of the time when we start talking about qualifications of elders, everybody zeroes in on how many kids does he have and are his kids believers? And is he a husband of one wife? And what does that mean? Most everybody zeroes in on those things and we pretty much ignore a lot of the character things, at least in our discussions we do. 
Well, why do we ignore those things? Because they seem pretty relevant to the work of an elder. Think about this. He's not covetous. You can tell by the way he lives his life that greed and money and those kinds of things do not consume him. They do not drive him. Titus 1 verse 7 says it that way. He's not greedy for money or for filthy lucre, the old old King James translation has. He's not greedy. He's not quick-tempered. You know, sometimes men have a temper and they're kind of hotheads and they say, well, that's just the way I am. I've just always been that way. If that's the way you've always been, if that's the way you are now, you're not qualified to serve as a shepherd. Not according to Titus chapter 1 verse 7. If you fly off the handle and get upset and go and sulk and do like Ahab, sorry, not good for the work of an elder. He's not self-willed. That means that he doesn't always have to have his own way. Now, the eight current elders will tell you, and I've sat in enough of their meetings to know, no one elder ever gets his own way all the time. No one elder ever gets his own way all the time. And if he does, and if he must always have his own way, he's probably not qualified because that's being self-willed. Have to have it my way. Have to do it the way I think it needs to be done. Otherwise, I'm not playing. I'm going to take my toys and go home. He's not self-willed. He does not make a habit of arguing and fighting. You know people like this? They're not happy unless they're in an argument. They're not happy unless they're stirring the pot. People do this on Facebook all the time. I want to stir the pot. I just want to create an argument. I want to create a controversy. I want to stir the pot. And they think it's fun. They think it's... That's not wise. That's not mature biblically. And it's certainly not the way a man who would serve as an elder needs to conduct himself. A habit of arguing and fighting disqualifies a man from serving as an elder. So you look at these bad habits, you look at these things in someone's character in their lives, and if you see these things as a matter of constant practice, big red flag. He's not a drinker, 1 Timothy 3, verse 3. Alcohol is not a part of his life. For that matter, illicit drugs are not a part of his life either. This is God's requirement. This is the kind of man God is looking for. Next, how does he relate to people? When you look at this man's interpersonal relationships, what do you see? Again, looking at these qualifications in the New Testament. Titus chapter 1 verse 8, 1 Timothy 3 as well, speak about the man being hospitable. Hospitality has to do with having people in your home. Hospitality also has to do with people meeting other people's needs. Jesus never had a home to speak of, and yet he was hospitable in his lifestyle. He cared for the needs of others. He looked after in the ways that he could, caring for others. And when we think about a man who would serve as a shepherd, do you see him meeting other people's needs? Do you see him interested in other people around him? Do you see him caring about the people that are in his sphere of influence? Is he hospitable? Do you see him treating strangers with kindness? Those kinds of questions. Next, he's not violent, but gentle. When you think of this man, do you think of gentleness? Do you think of compassion? Do you think of someone who is self-controlled to the point where even when he's irritated and even when he's agitated, he still treats others with kindness and gentleness? And then in 1 Timothy 3 verse 2, the Bible says he's to be able or apt to teach. 
that doesn't just mean that he teaches Bible classes, although that's a really good thing for a man who would serve as an elder to do, to teach Bible classes for adults or children or whoever. But after able to teach also means that when they're sitting at lunch, two men, two, two individuals that are Christians, this man who would serve as an elder, he knows enough of God's word and he has a good enough command of the gospel that he might share some things and he might even pull out his Bible and, and open the Bible and open the scriptures because he's apt to teach. He knows what the book says and he wants other people to know what the book says as well. And he wants more than anything for people to know God because he knows that's the most important thing anybody could ever do with their lives. How does he relate to people? He knows scripture well enough, as we've said, to refute error. He knows what the controversies are, but he doesn't obsess about controversies. He knows where error is fighting, is fighting battles. And he knows enough of scripture to be able to deal with that in a godly, healthy way. We're looking for men that are able to do those kinds of things, that meet those kinds of qualifications. Let me say this again. I believe Tom will say something to this effect as well. After the service this morning, there are going to be some forms in the foyer, and they're going to have these qualifications on them. If you have questions about this, don't hesitate to ask. But what the elders would like for you to do is to ponder those qualifications. And if you believe there is a man or some men that meet those qualifications that are not currently serving as shepherds, talk to them and ask them if they'd be willing to serve. And then if they say yes, you can submit their name, if you so choose, to the current eldership. And they'll begin the process of evaluating each of those men individually. That's the idea that's going to happen from this point forward. It's always an exciting time. It's always a little bit of a you know, jittery time in a congregation when a church goes through a, a, a transition in leadership. But I believe this with all my heart. I believe that God, if we will ask him and depend on him, I believe that God will bless his people in ways that blow our minds as he continues to do. And I believe that all of this will work out for good and for the unity and the growth and the prosperity of God's people here in Katy. And I'd like to challenge you to be praying to that very end. For the next several weeks, if you would, make our elder search and selection process a part of your daily prayer life, part of your family's prayer life. Because it's important to the future health and the future growth of the church here in Katy. Thank you for your kind attention to God's word this morning. If you're here and you're not a New Testament Christian, I know we've been talking about the qualifications of elders and the organization of the church that Jesus built. But you see, the way that you become a Christian, it relates to all this as well. Because an elder is not qualified unless he has first submitted his life to Jesus Christ. Unless he has decided that salvation in Christ is the one thing that he wants more than anything else in this world. You need to make that same decision. That Jesus Christ and his gospel are the only hope that you have for salvation. And if you're ready to become just a New Testament Christian, that's, that's all we become when we obey the gospel. Just Christians, believe in Jesus, repent of your sin, confess his name, and be baptized. When you're baptized for the remission of your sin, you become a child of God, you become a follower of Jesus Christ. If we can help you to make that decision this morning, or if we can help you by praying with you, whatever your need is, once you come all together, we stand and while we